book of Ezra, chapter 8, verse 23. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. You know, it's funny how you can spend a year and a half loading arrows into a quiver, and then the targets just present themselves. Sometimes the arrow is everything you've learned for the novels, and the target is an aggressive anti-Mormon who is not as clever as he thinks. Other times the arrow is living the law of the fast, and the target is an eager investigator who wants to make covenants with God. This is Welcome to the Faro, episode 19. Just do the freaking fast. So, it's April of 2005. I have been with Elder Feraldo for a month. He's very hardworking, very easy to get along with, and uh, we're just raking in the contacts and contacts and going through the ward list and finding members to visit in the uh, in the areas surrounding Girona and really enjoying just the uh, the efficacia of it all the uh, the efficiency the amount of work that we're getting done uh, you know especially in such a beautiful area it being the beginning of April it was of course time for another general conference and uh, we went to Barcelona for it we got to watch I think with the time difference, we would end up watching the two Saturday sessions, the priesthood session, and the Sunday morning session, but mm, Barcelona was about eight hours ahead of, of uh, Salt Lake City, so you know the final session would air way late at night, so we would just have to wait until the mission got a bunch of copies of the Ensign and we could read the talks in the final session. Uh, the talk that stands out to me the most in April of 05 was the one issued by then Elder Oaks and it is simply called pornography. Now the subject of this talk was not new to any members of the church or, or any of the priesthood holders. Um, this was a subject that the brethren warned about and talked about with some regularity but this talk I, I feel like was was kind of the definitive hammer on the subject for its time. In preparation for this episode, I reread the talk, and a couple of things stand out to me now that you know, probably stood out to me then just because it's, it's pretty succinct and pretty straightforward. Um, so you know, it's probably the kind of stuff that I took notes on back then. But you know, aside from recounting scriptural warnings and admonitions and the Lord's established standard on sexual purity and marital fidelity and all that stuff... Uh, you know, he emphasized the spiritual damages that pornography can cause. And he emphasized at the end of, of this uh, segment of the talk, he goes, you, you'll notice that I'm not talking about, you know, the, the mental side effects or the societal side effects so much as I am, like the, the dire spiritual consequences. And those are the kind of things that the Lord's prophets have been warning about, you know, since standards of sexual purity were issued to, you know, the very first children of God way back when. Um, and it's funny now that we're seeing, I say funny, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that we're seeing a greater proliferation of scientific research on the effects of 
uh, you know, pornography consumption on the human brain, uh, male and female. Um, I want to say it was one of the Ben Sass books that I read in 2019 that even went into detail on, uh, what the heck do they call it? P-I-E-D-S, uh, pornography induced, uh, erectile dysfunction syndrome or something where, where this, this rampant consumption of it is affecting the physiology, especially in, in young males to where it's, it's affecting their, their body. I don't want to go into too much detail on what is, you know, otherwise a, a spiritual podcast, but we are seeing, you know, other hazards of, of violating this commandment and consuming this sinful content, you know, that are, that are secondary to the spiritual damages that it caused. You know, as bad as the mental and physical side effects are, you know, the, the spiritual damage of it should not be overlooked. And in fact, it should be our primary concern. You know, we are spiritual creatures that for a time are housed in a tabernacle of flesh, as it were. And, you know, it makes sense that a called and ordained apostle of God would really emphasize it from that perspective. You know, we're, we're supposed to be taking care of, of our spirits first. And if we do that, you know, we see the, the, the physical and mental benefits that are, uh, that are pertinent there too. There are a lot more things that I want to say about this talk, but they will be more relevant in the June 2005 episode in two weeks. So I will save it until then because we would be fortunate enough to get a visit from Elder Oaks to our mission. Uh, he came there to set apart the new stake presidency in Barcelona and you know, gave a couple of talks, one that Saturday and one that Sunday at the state conference. And it was my, my privilege to be there for that. And he, he said a couple of things as a follow-up to that talk that uh, I, will, I will hold in reserve for the episode two weeks from now. This month was when I had an experience that would solidify my testimony of the law of the fast and the, the blessings that come with it. This is one of those few times, not just in my mission, but in my life, when I've had one of those experiences that when it happens to you, you stop and think like, this is the kind of thing that you read about in a church magazine. This isn't the kind of thing that you think you'll ever live through. You just, you read about it happening to other people and it kind of helps to fortify your own faith. But when you find yourself in the middle of it, it's, it's just a like, holy crap, this actually can happen to me type moment. So with General Conference landing on the first Sunday in April, and then, you know, the time change happening a week later, they, they do that in Spain too. Um, the next Sunday, our, our schedule was kind of all off. And this is, you know, you hear about how Germans have like this impeccable sense of timing, that it's this huge cultural thing in Germany where if a train is gonna be somewhere at 6.37, it's there exactly at 6.37. Well, we had this, uh, older German couple, Swiss German, the Lutz family, that came to visit once or twice while I was there. And this was the first week that they were there. And uh, Feraldo and I showed up for church and you know, nobody was there. And a couple of people were trickling in or something. And then this, this Swiss family was there. And uh, he's like, hello, I am Bruder Lutz or something. Like he spoke a little bit of Spanish and went in and sat down 
and we're waiting out front for Aldo and I because we usually greet the members as they come in and 10 minutes go by 20 minutes 30 minutes I'm like what the heck's going on and Bruder Lutz comes out and he goes hey what time is the meeting supposed to start and I told him and he kind of laughs and he goes huh and he goes in and sits down and then I realize like oh crap this is the week of the time change and him being a good Germanic person noted that and still showed up perfectly punctually on time and none of these other Spaniards did uh, you know none of the other members of the ward it wasn't it wasn't even majority Spaniard I would say but the, you know the point is like oh crap the, the meeting started late so the branch president showed up everybody else showed up I apologize to Bruder Lutz and and uh, we got things underway well then we realized that it was also supposed to be our fast Sunday the way that the schedule had landed and Feraldo and I had woken up and eaten breakfast that day without even thinking about it and when the members get stood up to start giving their testimonies I leaned over to him and I was like we didn't start our fast yesterday and in the mission we were stricter than I had ever been at home about the fast growing up to where you know you would have your medio dia at 2 eat your lunch start your fast at 2:30 and you would go the full 24 hours it was until you know the next day and uh you know the first you know weekend that I was with Feraldo that was a, a fast sunday weekend I had jokingly showed him an enhancement fast is what I called it and I still do this every now and then at home where we're fasting and I will bake up like an awesome, delicious something or other, treat, cake, whatever. And uh, you got to make the entire thing without licking your fingers or licking the, the beaters or anything like that. I showed him how to make a carrot cake. It was my first weekend in Girona and I, you know, this was this is going back to last month where I was still kind of getting over the the turbulence of showing up there under the conditions that I did and I said look we're going to show you an enhancement fast I'm going to make you a carrot cake and he's like talk to Thanaorias so he's like how do you make a cake with carrots in it and I was like I'll show you and I had to like shred them by hand on a cheese grater but we got it done and, and uh, I baked it all up and as it's baking and filling up the apartment with this smell he's like he's like dude they ought to call this a cinnamon cake I was like yeah you're going to dig it and so like, then the next day as we were getting home from our, our church meetings, he goes running into the apartment, and apartments in Spain didn't have carpets for the most part. They were either tile or hardwood. He goes running into the apartment, runs and does this like power slide on his knees to, to slide next to his bed, quickly says a prayer to break his fast, gets up and like sprints into the kitchen and tears this cake in half and digs into it. And he's like, oh yeah, this is awesome. So we'd done the enhancement fast the, uh, the week before, or the month before, um, but I, we had forgotten about doing the fast in April. And so, you know, we, here we are on the second Sunday and we botched it. So the following Sunday after that, the third Sunday of the month, I told him, okay, we're going to do, we're going to definitely do our fast. And um, we, we started it and everything. And then, you know, the, I think it was later that day or something, we'd gone over to uh, a member's house and this was a group where like a bunch of members lived there um, you know that weren't related there was some from Uruguay there was a Spaniard there was a Romanian there was another couple from Ecuador I mean they were all just kind of splitting the rent and <laughs> there was a the Uruguayan his name was Mibel nicest guy uh, he had a tendency to uh, I learned this word because of Mibel explayarse is the verb like to go on and on and on at length about something if this guy ever took the pulpit to share a testimony I mean, boom, that was 10 minutes of the meeting just gone uh, because he would he would talk a lot. Very spiritual guy, very nice guy, uh, just you know, very chatty. Well, whenever we went by to visit our friends in that apartment, 
Mebel would invariably whip us a, whip us up a, a cup of yerba mate and some little you know galletas, little cookie crackers, like sweet crackers, not cookies, but you know yeah. And Feraldo and I had started our fast, and then we went over to visit them for a, a member appointment. And as we're talking to everybody, Mebel, you know, as he always does, busts out the treats and. Uh, you know, I'd taken some sip of my mate, eaten a few of my crackers, and then I stop, and I'm like, ugh. And so I look over at Feraldo while everybody else is talking, and he spoke a little bit of English. And he looks at me, and he goes, what? And I said, I, I kind of said it quietly, more like mouthing it than anything. I said, fasting. And he goes, ugh. So we finished it, finished the meeting, finished the snacks, didn't want to be rude or anything. Because, you know, these people were also kind of tied up for cash. So we didn't want to, like, you know, Mebel went to the trouble of making us yerba from his home country. And anyway, we get outside and I said, look, we've got to do our fast this week. Here's what we're going to do. Um, we'll go about it on on uh, P-Day. As we wrap up our P-Day, we'll start our fast at Mediodia. We'll do the full 24 hours. We won't wait until Sunday. We will get it done this week. And he said, okay, cool. So we, we did it. We committed to it. We did the full 24. We went home for Mediodia on Thursday, broke our fast, did our studying, whatnot, got right back out of the, on the streets at 4 o'clock. And we were out for maybe 10 or 15 minutes when this man walks up to us. And uh, he's not a Spaniard. He's probably an inch or so taller than I am. He's got this sort of uh, Phil Collins look to him, keeps his head shaved. And uh, he speaks to us in English. He goes, are, are you the Mormon missionaries? I said, yeah. He goes, I, I just stopped by the chapel, but nobody was there. I was hoping to talk to someone. And uh, we said, yeah, well, what about? And he goes, my name is Simeon Lee. I'm from Preston, England. And um, I've, been, I've been looking for the missionaries because I wanted to join the church. I wanted to get baptized. And, you know, cue the jaws hitting the floor. I, I turned and translated it for Feraldo. I think he got most of it. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me after false starts and mess ups and miss ups and in botching the schedule this whole month this we finally finish the fast we we make the effort to comply with the law of the fast and some dude walks right up to us and says hey i've been trying to find you guys because i, I want to get baptized put it on the list of things that like i said i never thought would happen to me but it did and there it was now, because nothing in the mission is really ever that simple, the blessing of the fast for us, you know, for Feraldo and I, was finding Simeon and him being willing to learn and for you know, us being willing to teach him, or excuse me, uh, you know, him being willing to, to keep the commitments that we extended to him and so forth. Compromisos, uh, yeah, the, the challenges that we gave him and, and the invitations that we gave him. Um, but because nothing is, is so easy as that in the mission, uh, we had to teach him some new things, and it, it took some time for him to truly get ready for baptism. There were a lot of common things that we ran up against in Spain that uh, kind of helped us to, how can I say this, like build a pool of common knowledge that we would then share with each other as missionaries so that we could help investigators overcome similar problems. Namely, smoking. Smoking was everywhere in Spain. In fact, starting around the time I got to Girona, I started to pick up discarded cigarette boxes because over there in the European Union, 
they had been doing this thing that they've kind of started doing here in the U.S. more and more, where their equivalent Surgeon General forces the companies to put um, big, large block printed warnings of of the things that smoking can do to you. They had to spend like um, spend. They had to cover like half the box in these big block letter warnings, like smoking kills, smoking causes cancer, smoking can be the cause of a slow and painful death, literally it says that. And I actually started collecting these and tearing the, the warnings off and putting them in uh, a journal page that I have, um, you know, just because it, it was kind of intriguing to me that they would find all these different ways to warn people against smoking and, and yet everybody was taking up smoking. Um, it was almost a social thing. Uh, it was it was everywhere. You would you would smell smoke pretty much everywhere all the time. I've probably said this before, but we were told that the only country in Europe that smokes more than Spain is Russia, and that's because they've got kids starting up like really really young over there. So, you know, as missionaries, we got good at coming up with with ways to help people kick the smoking habit fast and effective, uh, and a lot of these. You know, these tips and stuff were written down in pages in the area books and you know the more effective ones were the ones that got you know shared and spread around a lot more in the entire two years that i was there i never had taught an investigator who i had to help kick the smoking habit um, or any other addiction really simeon's unique case was that he was homeless and you know as a general rule you know we would we would teach anybody that that was you know willing to keep commitments and so on and so forth but we weren't just baptizing random people off the street because you know the lord's house is a house of order and we've got to have a way to track people to to keep member records and you know one of the ways that we required that was uh an address so you know especially because you had a lot of these people that were how can i put this politely professionally homeless in Spain, uh, a lot of gypsies, a lot of uh, you know Eastern European families that would come over, and they they would make their living being professional beggars. Um, you know they would they would walk around with oh I've got this unconscious kid can you spare me something for him and then you find out later they're like no they're drugging their kids uh, they're feeding their you know two three four year old alcohol to knock him out to keep him quiet while they go around you know hopping turnstiles to get on metros and, and beg people for trains it was an art form you know, you, you'd see the same people especially because you as a missionary you kind of walk the same routes every day or several times a week and you'd see the same people in the same spots with the same stories you know begging for oh i just need you know money for a carton of milk or whatever and then you'd see them sitting in the park smoking a cigarette you know later in the day it was it was, you know they'd, they'd hang out in groups and then they'd go back to professional begging on the corners it was it was how a lot of these people worked, and so some of them would then target missionaries because they think, oh, well, you're Christian, you've got to help me out, and we'd tell them, no, that's not the resources that we have, we're proselyting missionaries, so on and so forth. There were people that would try to target the church just for the, the purpose of abusing handouts or, or demanding them, and we weren't going to do that. So, you know, that's why we had that, that rule in place is that you know, if, if somebody is, is ready, willing, truly going to, you know, convert and, and live the gospel, then, you know, that was one way that we helped keep track of, of who was doing that. Um, a frequent obstacle to people doing that was the fact that those people who were there 
you know, as professionally homeless types, were, were there also as illegal immigrants. And, um, you know, in their defense, it was, it was hard for a lot of them to get legal status, to get an address or whatever. Um, it was hard for them to get a job and support themselves. So they'd have to live at, you know, homeless shelters or something, which a lot of them did. There were plenty of places like that. In Girona, there was one called La Sopa. And uh, that was actually where, where Simeon was staying. But since this, you know, for you kids listening, this is way, way back in the pre-Brexit times, because this was 2005, England was still part of the European Union, and therefore Simeon had European Union citizenship. He had legal status. He could get any job that he was qualified for in Spain at any time. And so with that that being the situation, you know, we, we were teaching him the gospel. We were going through the lessons. We got him a copy of the Book of Mormon. He was reading it. He was, you know, coming with questions. He was writing things down. I mean, this guy was, he was a student of the gospel. And, and yet, you know, here was this, this really obvious thing in his life that he needed to change. And he says, well, you know, I, I came to Spain on a spiritual journey and he was living that hobo life. He would walk places. He would, he would kind of spend his days as a professional beggar. He had a, a goal of earning about 20 euros a day. He would eat really cheap food. You know, he was dumping rice in a water bottle and letting it sit for an hour to soak. And then he'd eat that. He would eat fruit and whatever. And at the end of every day, he'd give whatever he had to somebody else. Um, it was a very, you know, bare bones life. I don't know what had kind of first turned him toward the Latter-day Saints, to, towards the Church of Jesus Christ, but... You know, somehow he'd gotten it in his head that that was where he wanted to to be baptized, and so you know, us teaching in the lessons was was just us making sure that he understood the theology and the under, he understood the commitment that it was that he wanted to make, and then we we had to teach him kind of a different principle. We had to teach him you know the principle of of work. I called President Watson and I said, hey, you know we. <laughs> In my year and a half, I've never run into this where there's a homeless guy who's got legal status to work and he isn't working and isn't supporting himself and we wouldn't be able to keep track of his, his member file, you know, because of that. And, you know, President, in his diplomatic but firm way, said, well, we need to teach this man to, to man up and to be a man and to provide for himself so that, you know, he can you know, live that particular law of the gospel. So here I was, you know, well-versed in teaching people the Ten Commandments and in teaching them to be honest and to, you know, have faith and to repent and to be virtuous and all that stuff. I'd never had to sit down and explain to somebody from a gospel standpoint why they needed to work if they could. And yet the scriptures are full of teachings on this particular principle. And so we kind of tailored our teaching to Simeon, you know, on that point. He did have some other obstacles, namely that the documents that he had come to Europe, or excuse me, to uh, to the continent with, like his uh, British passport and so forth, had been stolen because he was homeless. People pick stuff off of homeless people all the time, namely other homeless people. In fact, while we were teaching him, he shows up to one of the lessons one day at the chapel and he's wearing like three pairs of socks. I'm like, Hey, what's going on there? And he goes, yeah, somebody stole my shoes last night. So this is just what I'm dealing with. And I'm, I'm saving up some of the money that I have to go, you know, buy some shoes at the Chino store. I was like, wow. You know, just again, you know, me getting a glimpse into a different type of life that I've 
never had to live and, and seeing how somebody else dealt with that. And the man was eternally, perpetually positive. I don't think I, I ever saw him get upset or, or negative or lose his good manners or anything like that. I mean, he just, he had certain things in life figured out and he was living to, to a very basic standard and he was completely comfortable and happy with that. Um, he was just wanting to take care of, of the spiritual things in life. And we told him like, look, you need to, you need to also provide for yourself, you know, temporally. So we, we taught him from that angle and he was, he was working on getting his paperwork all sorted out. He had a, uh, a wealthy brother, I think somewhere back in England that he was, you know, finding the means to, to telegram him and his brother was going to get replacement documents for him and sent to him. And so it was just kind of a waiting game from there. But uh, I would end up teaching Simeon for the rest of the time that I was in Spain, off and on. He would also come to, <laughs> we, we'd have our English classes, but we would also kind of end up teaching a, a reverse English class where we were teaching an Englishman Spanish. And he was picking up on it and he was getting really good at it uh, because we figured it would help him with, with the job search and just in general. His Spanish wasn't very, wasn't very good. It was kind of at a kindergarten level. But... He was getting there, and it was a mu as much of a unique challenge for us to teach him as it was for um, you know, for him to learn learn the gospel. But uh, it was it was a pleasure to teach him, and he did eventually get baptized after I finished my mission. I went and went home. Feraldo emailed me one week to tell me that that he had gotten baptized up in Girona. So the Lord works according to His own time, and if you're lucky enough, He'll let you be a part of the process. So that was my lesson on fasting for that month. The other lesson came one day when Feraldo and I were walking kind of con prisa in a hurry, heading towards some appointment or other. And as we're walking, there's not a whole lot of foot traffic out on this particular day that I noticed. And uh, so when you find somebody's following you, you, you pick up on that pretty quick. And Feraldo and I are walking and, you know, we're just always aware of our surroundings. And I, uh, I had kind of glanced to the left and I saw this guy sort of closing in on us. I figured he was just in a hurry too. And then I'm walking ahead and then I, or looking ahead. Then I look sort of to my left again and he's getting even closer. And I notice that he's looking straight at us. He's not just a guy who's walking on the same path and walking a little bit faster. He's... He's very, very interested. You can, you can see when somebody's dialing in on you in particular. So I, I stopped and I said, hey, Elder Feraldo, and we'd be turning to look at this guy like, hey, you know, how's it going? What's up? And he sort of introduced himself. I don't remember the particulars of this meeting. I just kind of remember his general demeanor. He was, he was interested in us, but he was not approachable. Um, he, was, he was kind of feeling us out. And, uh, you know, like Simeon, he was another British man, but he was not living in, in the, the same situation. This was a guy who was just, you know, in Spain on a vacation and saw us and wanted to talk to us. And uh, we were on our way to an appointment, but he's like, you know, well, when can I talk to you? And uh, we, we said, well, you know, here's the address. We gave him a card. Here's the address to the chapel. Meet us there, you know, later today or whatever. And uh, we'll, we'll see you then. He's like, all right. So he walks off, and I'm like, hmm. Well, I don't remember his name. I want to say it was like Bernard or something. 
he was dressed for vacation, you know, shorts, tank top, unbuttoned shirt over it, had a satchel with him. He shows up and he's got, uh, you know, the, the paperback copies of the Book of Mormon, the blue ones that are, you know, for giving away. He's also got a copy of the Doctrine and Covenants printed just like that, which I hadn't seen in a very long time. Uh, I'm not even sure the church still prints them like that anymore. They think they just print either the Book of Mormon or a triple with the DNC. I was like, oh, that's neat. I haven't seen one like that in a while. He goes, yeah, I, I got it from a used bookstore in, in whatever part of England he was from. It was, it still had the 50 cent sticker on it. So this guy had some questions about the church that he wanted to ask us. And he had even photocopied pages of the, uh, the history of the church, volumes one through seven. I guess he'd gone through that and uh, photocopied a few pages and highlighted some stuff, and he had questions. And he, he left those questions with us. We, we wrote them down, and we, we chit-chatted a little bit. He was not very warm or, like I said, approachable at all. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I had felt he was being kind of prickly yet, but there was there was a, a pointed nature to the questions that he was asking. He he was what's the right way to describe this? Based on my experience in not necessarily dueling with evangelicals, but when when an evangelical kind of comes at you for being a Latter-day Saint, they they start off soft but eventually they can't keep their foot off the gas and they start spurging out at the end and this guy eventually went that direction. He was trying to pitch these soft gotcha questions at us, you know, ostensibly from a doctrinal angle. And so he left us with this list of printed questions and when Feraldo and I went home that night, uh, you know, I, I looked at him, I wrote him down and I found scriptures, you know, both in just the Bible as well as in you know modern day scriptures that gave him his answers and you could tell that he'd kind of set this up as as a bit of a shuffle um, you know there are guys that that try to prep a, an argument via flowchart to try to get you to say one thing so that you're shoehorned into something else and then they counter and say well you said this you said that we met up with him for another appointment the next day and that was when he he just couldn't couldn't help but spaz out about it a little bit. And um, you know he pulled out his little book with his bookmarks in it, and he'd say, "Okay, so you said this," and I said, "Yeah, sure." And then he'd he'd give us this like kind of wide-eyed laser look, and then he'd pull out you know his copy of the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, what about this? And uh, I'd look at it, and I said, "This doesn't make the point that maybe you think it does." And you know, I'd, I'd pause and I'd turn to Elder Feraldo because, again, you know, his his English was was pretty good, but I just wanted to make sure that he was on the same page. And so I'd, I'd tell Bernard, "I was like, well, excuse me, let me say, you know, translate this to Feraldo." And I wasn't saying anything, you know, untoward about this gentleman in Spanish because I kind of suspected that he did speak Spanish. And you know, once I understood the nature of why he was trying to to you know corner us and say this that or the other thing like i i just wasn't going to i, I wasn't going to fall for that i wasn't going to let it go in that direction i wasn't going to waste you know my time being hostile and bringing in contention because 
you know, I had, I had kind of learned to avoid that in my time with Gordon, and it just it didn't make you an effective missionary. And so we, we entertained, you know, a, a few more questions from this man before it got to that point where, you know, he's like, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, the Bible says this. And, and finally, I, I kind of turned the tables and I said, look, you know, yes, the Bible does say this, but how do you know that that's true? And, you know, started asking him doctrinal questions. Well, how do you, how do you clarify this? How do you justify this that the Bible says? You know, the, the point is that the Bible is important and it is the word of God so far as it is translated correctly. The Bible is the word of God through prophets and we have prophets today and we are fortunately not confined to only the Bible. You know, there, there are prophets who can clarify things for us and that's important. And I, I feel like it left on, on a good enough note, but the, the takeaway lesson for me was that, you know, I was a Nivelle 5 in the mission. I, I was very well versed in all of the scriptures and all of the lessons and in all of the doctrine at this point. And that was the first time that I can really think of when somebody kind of came at me with the with the intent to try to, to trip me up on something or other and I wasn't worried about it. I felt comfortable, I felt confident, you know, the, the spirit was there and I knew what I was talking about. And that was that. That experience would go on to serve me very well, you know, in the in the years afterward. Um, especially starting about I'd say five years ago. Because I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, a gentleman whose name I am not going to say on this podcast because I'm not going to give him the advertising. But right around 2015, there was a, a very well-concerted, you know, concentrated effort by an anti-Mormon man in Utah County who I think he's been since excommunicated to present himself as a guy like oh asking honest questions wanting honest answers but his ultimate goal has been to to lead people out of the church and especially to do so for financial gain for himself we will call him johnny Nehor. if you've been following along with come follow me at the time of this recording we haven't quite gotten to Korahor, but this guy's got more of a Nehor flavor to him anyway Johnny Nehor has made himself, I don't know, quite a name in the, uh, in the anti-Mormon community. He's definitely made himself quite a bank account. Um, in 2018 alone, I, I know he managed to rake in about 200 grand from his podcasts and his merchandising efforts and stuff. Um, it's, been, it's been interesting to see how effective he's been at kind of convincing people to talk themselves out of of continuing to go to church how how i've seen people kind of parrot his arguments almost verbatim because you know he makes it easy for people who who i guess grew up in the church who inherited a spiritual tradition but never found their own foundation within it um you know instead of them just saying like yeah i'm not going to keep up with this anymore he's managed to convince them that they've been wronged somehow that that the uh, historical truths of the church have been kept from them and so on and so forth and, and try to turn them you know, hostile towards it. Um, it was this foundation that I gained in the mission of just studying you know, the, the plain word of God in the scriptures as well as you know, writings of modern prophets 
that's that's kind of helped to fortify me personally against this kind of, of trickery and deception, especially against a guy who's practicing what it amounts to secular priestcraft for financial gain. Um, it has been disappointing to see, you know, certain friends and family members and even people who served the same mission I did kind of fall prey to this because they end up prioritizing other things. There are, there are even a couple of them that, uh, and this goes back to what Elder Oaks was talking about in General Conference in April of 05, that I know allowed themselves to fall into uh, a pornography habit. Um, they did exactly the kind of things that Elder Oaks warned against, uh, you know, justifying their habit, saying it was, you know, just one scene in a, in a television show or, or what have you. And that leads, you know, from one thing to another. It causes you spiritual damage. It, it puts rust and chinks in your armor. And unsurprisingly, these same people who have been consuming popular pornography and entertainment have also allowed themselves to become susceptible to this sort of deception. Uh, it is disappointing to say the least. Uh, the flip side of that coin is that, hey, wouldn't you know it, once again, you know, God's prophets and apostles are right in warning us to stay away from these things because of the spiritual damage that they cause to us. I've been really grateful in the last couple of years to find some like-minded people uh, you know, online, especially on, on Twitter, who have taken a harder tack in, in actively defending the faith in, uh, in, in online spheres and online places. Because for the most part, you find people with a politically progressive worldview who put their, their spirituality and their faith in the back seat and ultimately allow their politics to dictate you know, their, their highest values and try to then twist and wrestle the scriptures into their political values. And that's not exclusively to those of the progressive persuasion. There are plenty of, you know, the, the diehard right-wing types that, that do the same thing. The point is that, you know, we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints ought to have the gospel of Jesus Christ as our highest values. Everything else should take a back seat, and it's, if it's especially incompatible with that, we should set it aside altogether. Um... And much like I realized after doing all five of those novels and studying and everything, you know, the answers to questions that people have, the genuine questions, are there. You know, the, there are plenty of things within the gospel that may not be fully revealed, that we don't always understand, but the plain and simple truths are there, and it's, it's not just a trite thing to say, you know, hey, they're don't let the testimony that you don't have damage the testimony that you do have because there are things that you do know and there are things that you don't know they don't cancel each other out they're both there but we ought to put our faith in a God who does know everything and his love for us is boundless and limitless and we can do so with the understanding that if we just meet his terms we will one day understand everything that we don't know the important thing right now is to have faith in God, in Jesus Christ, in the Holy Ghost, to repent, to make covenants, and to keep those covenants, and to not fall for any sort of secular man-made bullcrap 
that tries to knock us off course along the way. In closing here, this is where I want to make a couple of recommendations to you if you guys haven't checked it out already. I'm a, a part-time contributor to a website called Tiankum's Javelin. Um, there's like no advertising on it or anything like that. It's not a monetary thing. It's just where you know a, a group of my friends and I uh, kind of go to, to write up articles, sometimes about the Come Follow Me lessons. Um, I tend to do some you know church book reviews on there. Uh, a guy named Brett Jensen, uh, he's the uh, the satire guy. It's like the Latter-day Saint version of the, the Babylon Bee. Um, but we also, you know, occasionally put on uh, shorter treatments of, of uh, how can I say it, like deeper doctrinal points or, or, you know, responding to current events within the church that, uh, you know, help people to, to understand and, and gain, you know, context for those things. Uh, one more website that I would recommend is conflictofjustice.com. Um, I don't know the guy who runs this site. He's he's very protective of his identity because he's been um, you know targeted and harassed by by antis in real life. Especially because he is very effective in refuting the lies of of anti Mormons. Um, this guy does a lot of research all on his own. He's also an illustrator. He does some artwork for some of the articles and dissertations that he posts on his page. In 2015, when the fake CES letter started to circulate, that was you know supposedly this bombshell thing explaining how the Book of Mormon couldn't possibly be true because of blah, blah, blah. He put on his work boots and his gloves and dove headfirst into that thing and beat the crap out of it. He's got one article on his website you know, which specifically enumerates 237 falsehoods in that fake CES letter, and he and he just annihilates them point by point. He's also got examinations of the uh, what the heck are those things called? Those things in the Book of Abraham, the papyrus transcriptions, the the figures. Um, you know, he he analyzes them. He's got you know some deep doctrinal, cultural, historical explanations of that kind of stuff. He's also got the entire Hugh Nibley library at home, and he draws on that, you know, heavily when when writing up more, you know more succinct pieces that are, you know, elaborations on stuff. Sorry about that brief interruption. I am of course recording this while getting my truck loaded at work. But anyway, the the point of all this is that, you know, God does expect you to to do your own studying, to do the homework, as it were. And you know, he's got the answers out there for you. Study the scriptures. Read the books that the church puts out. Read Saints, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Uh, read the works of James E. Talmadge. Listen to general conference talks. There's a reason that we get general conference twice a year. It's because, you know, especially now in the 21st century, opposition continues to ramp up. It's not necessarily going to get any easier, spiritually speaking. President Nelson has even said recently that in the coming years, it's not going to be easy to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But just because mankind and the world won't make it easy doesn't mean that they can make it wrong. You know, the fullness of the gospel is on the earth. The true church on the earth is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Read the Bible. Read the Book of Mormon. Read the Doctrine and Covenants. Listen to the words of the prophets and the apostles. Because the truth is there. And that'll do it for this week. If you guys have any commentary, feedback, questions, whatever, for this episode or any other episode, feel free always to drop me a line. Faro Podcast 
at gmail.com. That is F-A-R-O podcast at gmail. Until next week, keep the faith.